couple uh, disclaimers here as uh, we start the sermon. Um, I am like really nervous about this, but I have uh, three people that will cheer me on and give me hearty amens every once in a while. Um, so I thank you for being here. It's actually an encouragement. Uh, though my communication skills aren't real good to get word out, I'm glad you're here. Uh, to be able to do that. Uh, second thing is, uh, over the course of the next four weeks, uh, we are in the uh, Lenten season uh, in many traditions, and what I want wanting to do is prepare our hearts to consider the uh, weightiness of, the, uh, of Good Friday and the cross and the glory and the sweetness of the resurrection. So really what I want to do is I'm going to be sort of running on the tracks of um, D.A. Carson. This is my disclaimer, my footnote. His book, Scandalous, goes far, much farther than I'm able to do. I read this book a few years ago, and it had a profound influence in how I look at the cross and how I look at the resurrection. So I said, I want to be able to share some of these tracks so that he is providing some of the parameters, and I want to be able to proclaim the good news um, of the bitterness of the cross and the sweetness of the empty tomb and the resurrection. So with that being said, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 uh, in verse 27 through 51. When you read a book, things aren't always what they appear. I remember this when in high school, Mr. Moon, my English teacher, uh, gave us the book The Scarlet Pimpernel to read. And it was one of my favorite books, and I've read it since then, and I have still wonderfully loved the richness of the irony that it presents. Because when an uh, author uses irony, they're not all, things are not always what they appear. One of the main characters in the Scarlet Pimpernel is Lady B Margaret Blakeney. She's an English aristocrat, and she's married to Sir Percy Blakeney. And if you know anything about the book, Dawn does, and uh, she, he, you know that Percy Blakeney is a dull, dim-witted fop of a husband who, as Margaret thinks, doesn't even love her. But the novel is set in the middle of the French Revolution and Robespierre's reign of terror um, knows, tells the story of the French aristocrats who are being rounded up in mass and sent to the guillotine. And the only hope to be able to escape certain death is the Scarlet Pimpernel. He is a mysterious master of disguise who with his brilliant swordsmanship is in quick thinking heroics is able to sweep these aristocrats out of France and to escape certain death. Well, long story short, Margaret Blakeney, in attempting to save her brother, who is in the league of the Scarlet Pimpernel from death, actually betrays the Scarlet Pimpernel to the main antagonist who is trying to capture him. Here's the irony. Unknown to Margaret Blakeney, her husband, which she doesn't believe loves him, actually dearly loves her and is the Scarlet Pimpernel. I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but the rest of the book, after she finds this out, she says, how could I have been so blind to the identity of my husband? And the rest of the book is devoted to undoing the foolishness that she has done. 
Whenever you read through literature, poems, uh, 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 novels, books, you uh, come across irony and it adds depths of mystery, uh, of meaning that would otherwise be lacking. Sometimes irony is sweet. Sometimes irony is bitter. Here in Matthew chapter 27, the, uh, Matthew is no stranger to irony. And Jesus, as he is presented here to us, the readers, Matthew is using irony to teach us truth that a cursory reading of the text you may miss because you think things are all the way they appear. But as any student of literature knows, irony is not always as it appears. Joseph. Will you go onto that music stand and get me my clicker? I don't have it. Uh, Andrew, bring up the big idea for me. Uh, this moment, I want you to know that the defeat of the cross reveals the victory of Jesus. The defeat of the cross reveals the victory of Jesus. And how do we know that? Four ways. The man who is mocked is king the man who is mocked is king the man who is weak thank you brother is powerful the man who can't save himself saves others and the man who cries out in despair trusts god if you're keeping notes at home i know that's a lot those will come back in a moment but we're going to begin by looking in verses 27 through 31 the man who is mocked is king. Notice the verses. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and gathered uh, the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed on his right, in his right hand and kneeling before them, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him in the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. If you were an observer that day, that uh, fateful day that, on that Friday, you wouldn't suspect anything was out of the ordinary. See, for their three crucifixions that day were just like every other that, that had always been. It was standard procedures for the condemned to be flogged immediately after the sentencing, a cruel and unusual punishment. And then throughout this flogging and scourging, the soldiers who were administrating this torture would mock him. And they would ridicule him, and because there really was nothing else to do for their amusements. However, this prisoner that day, whose name was Jesus, was different. Just a week earlier, a frenzied crowd had rushed him into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, and proclaimed him the long-awaited son of David as he rolled, uh, rode into Jerusalem as Solomon had thousands of years before. This was no ordinary criminal that day. Your common, ordinary criminal, he needed to be honored. 
And the question is, as you're reading, why does this criminal, this Jesus, this king of the Jews, need to be honored? Simply because he was a king. So rather than just a handful of cruel soldiers mocking him, the whole battalion showed up. Some 600 men came to pay homage to this king in residence. This was the king of the Jews. They presented him before the battalion to catcalls and jeers and sneers in all of his glory. And he was naked. And he was bloody. And he was weak. And as the soldiers mocked him with sarcastic praise, Jesus uh, Jesus absorbed every insult, every sneer, and every ridicule in hushed silence. And as they did this, at some point, one of the soldiers came up with the idea that this king of the Jews was not properly attired. So what they did is they found an old scarlet cloak and they laid it across his back, his open and bleeding back, which had been ripped apart by a cat of nine tails in the scourging. They twisted a thorny vine into a makeshift crown and they shoved a reed into his hand as a scepter because kings must dress like kings. Jesus was then paraded through the governor's headquarters as a raucous crowd shouted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat upon him. Several soldiers even snatched the reed from Jesus' hand and they began to beat him in the head with it. However, after a time when the thrill was gone, they put his clothes back on and they sent him to be crucified with the other ordinary criminals that day. But in one last act of derision, they nailed a sign above his head. You can see what it says in verse 37. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The irony of Matthew's writing is this. The man who is mocked as a king is the King of the Jews. See, the the soldiers thought they were really clever as they hailed Jesus as king, they thought that in their acts of ridicule and shame that they were exposing Jesus as a fraud. But the irony of Matthew, and as Matthew knows, and the readers know, and God knows, that the frauds that afternoon were the soldiers. Matthew's irony is delicious because the soldiers in this account were the ones that were telling the truth. Jesus is the King of the Jews. But let me ask you this, Ocean Park, and friends who are joining us online. What type of king was Jesus? Kings are not mocked. Kings are honored. Kings are not weak. They're powerful. Kings are not dishonored. They're venerated. The irony of the cross demonstrates that things are not as they appear in this world. For Jesus is not like the kingdoms of the world. He is not a king who is served, but he is a king who serves. Don Carson, in his book, says this, 
or earlier, Jesus has already said this, excuse me. Jesus has already said this uh, some seven chapters earlier. Whoever would be great among you must also be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must also be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was not a king that the Pharisees and the soldiers or even Pilate or Herod could figure out. He was not the king they were used to, and he was not the king who they anticipated. Jesus did not come for self-promotion and for self-preservation. Jesus came to serve. Instead, uh, Jesus did not seek the good for himself. Jesus came as a king who sought the good of his people. And that desire to serve his people led them to what they needed the most, peace with God, and that led Jesus to the cross. See, the first irony of the cross is this, that the man being mocked as king is the king, the king of the Jews and the king of all creation, but he's a king who sacrificed his life to bring his people life. And therefore, we see that the defeat of the cross reveals the victory of Jesus. The man who is mocked is king, and the man who is weak is powerful. Continuing in verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge which read, Jesus, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Every step of Jesus along the Via Dolorosa, was utter agony. Pain was searing through his body, and um, with every step, blood-stained step, the teeth of the whip had cut deep into his back and lacerated his muscles. Jesus' body at this point in the day is desperately weak and broken. The heavy wooden cross piece that they would have tied to his shoulders was 30 to 40 pounds, and it was simply too much for him to to carry as he staggered under its weights. So for the sake of his expediency, and so they didn't have to do more work dragging his carcass to the cross, they, by law, were able to take a bystander, and they chose a Cyrenian uh, named Simon to carry the cross because Jesus was simply too powerless and too weak. When they arrived at Golgotha, the hill of execution, the soldiers, like fa- in like fashion they had done before, stripped Jesus completely naked. And they nailed him to the cross. 
and a guard and guarded his body until he would eventually succumb to death. As Jesus, like all those that were crucified, desperately works to get a gasp of breath. At his feet, the soldiers are casting lots to see who would receive his garments. Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was forsaken. And Jesus was utterly powerless. Carson, in uh, his book, Scandalous, says this, The soldiers kept watch. At this point, Jesus has no hope, none whatsoever of rescue. Suffering immeasurably, shame intolerably, broken in body and spirit, without any prospect except the release of, to death. Jesus hangs in shame on that wretched cross, utterly powerless. If that were not enough, the physical pain and agony that Jesus was experienced, uh, notice in verse 39 those bystanders who came by, it says those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, they scoff. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You can almost feel the sense of victory uh, that was in those jeers uh, from the bystanders of the cross. This miracle worker from Nazareth had finally bitten off too much for him to chew. He had in this, as they said, G Jesus had called out in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Every new insult from the bystanders that day was a bitter reminder that Jesus was powerless to do that thing that he had boldly claimed earlier to do. Instead, Jesus dies in weakness and in shame. But here again, the irony is incredible. The man who hung powerless on the cross was establishing the new temple. It's to be able to get an understanding of context, we step back in the Old Testament and think about what was the temple for? What was the purpose of that? The temple was the place where a holy God met with a sinful people. It was a place where God received sacrifices of atonement and sacrifices of peace that they brought to their God. But now, at the cross, the writers of the New Testament are showing us and demonstrating that, that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new meeting place between the Father and a sinful people. This powerless man who hung naked on the cross actually does, incres uh, uh, um, actually does possess incredible power because with every jeer and every condescending sn uh, sneer and mock, Jesus was completing the very thing that they accused him of being unable to do. You see, Matthew's irony shows us once again that things are not always what they appear. Ocean Park, it is in the weakness of death that Jesus brought life. It is utter weakness that Jesus in his power was able to do what no man was able to do and to bring peace 
from a sinful people and a holy God. The weakness of the cross accomplished the power of the resurrection that would be demonstrated three, three days later. This new and living way, as the author of Hebrews tells us, where God has met, Christ has made into the Father. The shame of the cross produced the glory of eternity. The second irony of the cross is that the man being mocked uh, as weak is powerful. The, in, in Christ alone can we have peace with God. Brothers and sisters, we can remember that the defeat of the cross reveals the victory of Jesus. Jesus is the man who, is, the man who was mocked as uh, who is actually king. Jesus is the man who appeared weak, but it actually is powerful. And Jesus is the man who couldn't save himself, but he saves others. Notice in uh, verse 41 and 42, so also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the, if he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. The accounts of Jesus' mighty works uh, in, in Nazareth area had spread like wildfire through Galilee and Judea and Idumea. Fantastic reports had come and brought into Jerusalem of Jesus healing the sick and of cleansing the lepers, of casting out demons, and even raising the dead had made their way to the ears of the people, and some were amazed and some were shocked, and some couldn't believe it. They had never heard anything like this before. I imagine that Friday afternoon, many of those who were loitering on the hillside of Golgotha were seeing Jesus for the first time, and they weren't impressed. This is him. This is the miracle worker from Nazareth who was able to raise the dead and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers. This is the one who cast out a legion of demons and fed the 5,000. He can't even save himself from the execution of the Romans. What an incredible disappointment. See, Jesus saving people was always Jesus' mission from the very beginning of Matthew when uh, Mary uh, was told, or when Joseph was told about the pregnancy of Mary, the angel says this, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And then just uh, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, what? Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew's irony is deep and profound because the mission of Jesus to save his people from his sin, all appearances showed that he was an utter failure. Jesus had finally been ex exposed as a fraud in the 11th hour. But here's where the irony of the cross, when things are not always as they appear. If Jesus is to save others, he cannot save himself. Why is that? 
Well, it's not the nails that held Jesus on the cross that day. Jesus had a divine reservoir of supernatural strength that could revive his body at a moment, and he could remove himself and in a moment, in a word, in a glance, wipe away the Romans. And it wasn't the soldiers who kept walk over G- watch over Jesus. Jesus had a multitude of heavenly hosts that were being held back by his hand that were uh, itching to go down and to havoc destruction upon the mighty Romans. But the words of Christ were never spoken and he held them back. Carson again says this, he says, it is he came to do the Father's will and he would not be deflected from it. The one who cries in anguish in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done, is under such a divine moral imperative from his heavenly Father that disobedience is finally unthinkable. It was not the nails that held Jesus to the wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution out of love for his Father to do his Father's will. And within that framework, it was his love for sinners like me, like you. He really could not save himself. Jesus, brothers and sisters, was saving others when he chose not to save himself. He laid down his life to do the Father's will. Ocean Park, Jesus is a powerful king who came to save us from our sin. And to the world, when they look and when they read this account, they scoff and they sneer and they mock that Jesus is an utter failure. He's a huge disappointment. This is a good life cut short. This is a lunatic who got what he deserved. But to those of us who have been given by the Spirit eyes of faith to read the Scripture, these words are sweet. Because Jesus saved me from my sin that I could do nothing to be freed from. We sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, written by Keith Getty and Stuart Townen. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Jesus saved me, not himself, so that I could enjoy peace with God. Jesus saved me, not himself, so I could joyfully do the will of the Father. The third irony of the cross is that the man who couldn't save himself was saving all who put their faith in him, that we may be called sons and daughters of God, and we rejoice that the defeat of the cross reveals the victory of Jesus. We see that the man who is mocked is king. We see the man who is weak is powerful. We see the man who can't save himself saves others. And finally, we see the man who cries out in despair trusts God. He trusts in God, verse 43 says. Let God deliver him if he he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were there crucified with him also reviled in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this point in the day, darkness has covered the land. The shadow of God's wrath is, uh, lingers above Jerusalem as the Son of God desperately gasps out for a single breath. His muscles scream in pain. His body aches. And his mind is gripped with despair. Jesus is in utter agony, bearing the sins of many. The sins of the world. Yet the onlookers and the criminals beside him revel in despair. They have no idea what's happening. He, they say in a mocking way, sarcastically, sarcasm dripping, thick and cutting, he trusts in God. The chief priests with the scribes and the elders, to them it is painfully obvious that Jesus' trust in God is absolutely worthless. For God has abandoned him and to die in shame and agony, naked, forsaken by his disciples. Only his mother and a, few, a small band of faithful women have been faithful to him. Much to their delight, those who scoff, Jesus utters words of despair. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At first glance, and we read through, we think Jesus is cracked. It's over. He's given up, and he turns against the Father in despair and anger. But remember, Matthew is writing with irony, and his things do not appear as they are. They're not always the way they seem. Jesus, the long-awaited son of David, is praying a lament. The very lament that Andrew read this morning, that his father David had cried in his despair in Psalm 22. Jesus is crying out the prayer, the lament of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning, oh my God? I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Those bitter words that Jesus is praying on the cross were not words of despair. They were words of trust. Trust that knew the fear, the agony, the pain of the suffering of living in a fallen world and taking upon the sin of that world on his shoulder. He cries out to the Father whom he loves and he laments of the sin that is crushing him because he trusts his Father. The pain, the agony, the bitter cup was given to drink was of no surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew this was coming, and he said, not my will, but yours be done. He is willingly submitting to the will of the Father in perfect obedience. Jesus is not expressing self-pity. Jesus is expressing his complete trust in the Father in the midst of agony and pain and suffering. 
The darkness that overwhelmed Jerusalem that Friday afternoon was symbolic of the wrath of God and the silence of the Father as he watched the Son bear the full weight of sin's penalty alone. God was punishing God. The Father was punishing the Son so that we, those who have put their trust in who Christ is and what he has done so that we can be brought into the divine fellowship of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the way we were created and intended to be. And Matthew's irony is bittersweet. The one who despairs trusts God. Jesus trusts the Father perfectly. He endures the full weight of sin on his shoulders alone. As the Father turns his face away in utter utter silence and pours his wrath down, Jesus says, I am forsaken. Jesus did this. And Jesus cried that out so that you and I would never utter such words. Ocean Park, if your trust is in who Jesus is and what he has done, if you have repented of your own self-rule and self-promotion and you have turned in faith and believed the promises of God, you will never taste the bitterness of God's wrath on you. The difficulties you, you encounter in this world are not the punishment of God because Jesus paid it all. You will never cry out, I am forsaken because Jesus was forsaken by God on your behalf. Because Jesus suffered in, in silence, because he suffered alone, because he cried out in despair. He suffered in silence because he would, is rejected. You will never have that despair. You will never suffer in silence. You will never be rejected by the Father. The final irony of the cross is that the man who despaired completely trusted in God so that you and I may be called the sons and daughters of the Most High. We can now, because of Jesus, come to the almighty God of the universe, a holy God, and say, our Father, who art in heaven. The defeat of the cross. The defeat of the cross is what brought the victory of Jesus. Ocean Park, things are not the way they always appear. We thank God for the irony of the gospel that the king who died now lives and reigns. And as we listen to these words, as we listen to this irony, I want to ask two groups of people what they see. For those of you who do not know Jesus, for those of you who have never put your trust in Jesus, you might like Jesus, Jesus curious is curious to you, you might be in proximity to Jesus, you might be a moral person, you might occasionally visit a church because you see the value of worship and community, but you, when you read these texts, you see Jesus, do you see him as a pathetic, weak, despairing man who could not save his, himself? Or do you see a powerful king who trusted God and saved you when you couldn't save yourself? This is the promise of the gospel to you today, that God is calling you to repent of your sin, your functional saviors, living for your own glory, your own pleasure, your own desires. And repent of those things. Turn from them. Have nothing to do with them. 
renounce your right and your desire for those and turn to Jesus and trust him, believing John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that he did what that he gave his only son. That whoever believes him, not just a mental assent, but believe who listens, who does it, who trusts it, who puts all the poker chips in the middle of the table, we trust Jesus, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Matthew is calling you. Jesus is calling you. I am calling you today to believe in Jesus to believe that you may have eternal life, that you may have peace with the Father, to repent of your sin and to trust the promises of God. To the next person, to the believer, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a story that has grown familiar or gone ordinary? You've heard it year after year at this time. It really doesn't have the impact it once did if it ever did. Do you see the good news or do you see the good news of that brings you hope and peace and victory in the midst of struggle, in the midst of fear, in the in midst of a world that is panicking? We can trust Jesus with the little things, the aches and pains of our bodies and the pandemics that are in our world. We can trust Jesus because the biggest thing has been conquered. Sin and death has been defeated and has been rendered a servant of the Almighty God to bring people into His presence. We no longer fear that because we believe the promises of God. Financial hardship, unexpected expenses, broken relationships, doubt, uh, confusion, sorrow, and sickness. Though we weep, Though we have anxiety, though we fear these things, because we live in a fallen world and we're sinners, sin does not have the final word. Why? Because Jesus has conquered sin and death and he will care for his people. Jesus took care of our greatest enemy and we can trust him with the little enemies that we face every day. We don't need to fear hurricanes though we are wise. We don't have to fear presidential elections, uh, though we are wise. We don't have to fear worldwide pandemic, though we are wise and we're prepared and we take precautions. We can trust God because He has conquered sin and death and He will care for His people. He gives us what we need, when we need it, in the amount that we need. And when we look at the world and we just don't understand what God is doing, we cling to the promises of God. Like the, word, like the prophet Habakkuk said, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. But in the times that cause our heart to fear, we cling to the promises of God. If you're if turning your Bibles to Romans 8.31, if you're not, it'll come up on the screen in front of you. Romans 8.31 reads as this, the promises of a conquering Savior, a King who lives and His power has accomplished salvation, though it didn't look like it, He did it. The irony of the cross that brings us hope and declares the victory of Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also um, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God who justifies, who it is that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Ocean Park, what shall separate you from the love of God? Love of Christ. So tribulation or distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? Danger? The sword? No. 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 Verse 37, none. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us so. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ocean Park, when you look at the cross, what do you see? When you look at the cross, realize this, that things are not always as they appear, and that the defeat of the cross reveals the victory of Jesus. Take hope.